Lord, we ask that you would bless your word to us now. Your word is indeed a light and a lamp for us, your people, Lord. And by it, you thoroughly equip us for every good work. And so we ask, Lord, that you would bless us with your spirit to work the truths that we hear tonight into our hearts. We pray that you would comfort those who need comforting, that you would convict those who need convicting, Lord. And I pray that all that I say tonight would be honoring and glorifying to you. For we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to consider tonight from the book of Colossians. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. If you're using the Pew Bible, that can be found on page 1,254. That's 1254, Colossians chapter 4. We're going to consider from verses 7 to 18, so really just the end of this book, but uh, I want to begin my reading at verse 2 of chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And now the text that we will consider. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness, he has worked hard for you, and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of, Laodice- of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Well, when I have the uh, privilege like this evening to uh, 
preach at another church, I often bring greetings on behalf of my church, Escondido URC. And I really enjoy doing that. And mainly because it expresses not just love and care, but it expresses to other churches that you are not alone. You have brothers and sisters in different places, in different churches, and we are all part of the body of Christ. And that's a beautiful thing to be part of the body of Christ. And I think this text really functions to teach us what the body of Christ kind of looks like. You see, here are these Colossian Christians. They have their own struggles, their own trials, their own difficulties that exist among this church. And here is Paul writing to them as an apostle, someone who loves and cares for the church. And he writes and he lists here in this closing uh, instructions or this closing to this letter, and he lays out all these different names. And this is really to serve to encourage these Christians in Colossae that they too are not alone. They're not alone. Now, when we read a text like this, I think it can be uh, somewhat tempting to kind of just gloss over this section of a book. You see, maybe uh, if we would have started in the beginning, then we would have read and covered, you know, the, the, the heart of the letter. And so when we come to these kind of further instructions as it's titled here in my ESV Bible, uh, it's easy for us to just kind of gloss over and not to give this so much attention. But let me remind you, brothers and sisters, all of Scripture is God-breathed. All of Scripture is useful for teaching and reproving and correcting and training us up so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And this section is no exception. And so what we have here in this text is really an encouraging record of how believers are to be a blessing to each other. In addition, we see here God's faithfulness to his people in working through Christians. You see, as I said, Paul begins this section with mentioning some names, some fellow believers in Christ. The first name he lists is that of Tychicus. That's not the only name, though, is it? Along with Tychicus, Paul lists other fellow believers in Christ, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, Jesus, who is called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, Demas. Then Paul sends greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea, to a woman named Nympha in the church in her house, and finally a personal message to a man named Archippus, a, a minister. Now again, what does all of this point out to the church at Colossae? That they're not alone. They're not alone. They're not alone in their Christian struggles and fighting. They're not alone in fighting false teaching and false teachers. They're not alone in struggling and battling against sin, the world, and the devil. This section communicates to these brothers and sisters in Christ that they are part of a larger body of believers. There are more Christians out there. They have fellow believers just like themselves, struggling in many and various ways. They have their own stories of faith and struggles and even, sadly, failures, as the Christian life has. 
They have fellow brothers and sisters who are united to them via Christ. And they share in a mission for the kingdom of Christ. And so I would title, and I've titled this sermon, Fellow Believers in Christ. Fellow Believers in Christ. And our three points that will serve us tonight as we look at this text are fellow believers who are united in Christ, fellow believers who are growing in Christ, and fellow believers who are working for Christ. Now, as I mentioned, Paul begins here with uh, a list of different names, but it's not just different names. These are people with different backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. You've got Jews and Gentiles represented here. But what is the one common denominator that all these people share? They're Christians. They're Christians. They're in Christ. They may be at different places in their walk with Christ. They may have had different experiences of faith in Christ, but they're all in Christ. This is a list of fellow believers in Jesus Christ. And the beautiful, beautiful thing about being in Christ is that all those other differences that uh, make much sense to the world seem to fade in comparison to what we have as Christians in Jesus Christ. You see, when you're in Christ, it really doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what your background was. It doesn't matter your age, your race, your sex, your economic status. Uh, when people are in Christ, there's, there's an immediate connection for them. There's an, an understanding, an appreciation, and yes, even a love for each other, a love for the brethren. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of traveling somewhere and either in the airport or on an airplane or a bus or a train or in a distant foreign place, you run into some Christians. And you immediately hit it off with them because of that very Reality. I had that happen at uh, this past summer's youth convention. I saw some uh, Christians reading their Bible in the airport, and so I just had to go over and talk to them. It's kind of me to do that, but nevertheless, I see people reading Scripture. I want to know, how are these people doing? I'll tell you this, if we were being persecuted, we would certainly appreciate the brethren like never before. But we don't have to wait to be persecuted Right? There's an immediate connection between Christians. And why? Why is that? Because what we have in Christ is primary for us, isn't it? What we have in Christ is the single greatest possession that we have, Christ. That's our identity. That's who we are. We belong to Christ. And therefore, we share in a fellowship, a fellowship of members of Christ. Now, in addition to being members in Christ, this also means that we share a, a common experience as Christians, right? We are fellow exiles and uh, pilgrims. The covenant community today are a scattered people. We, we live much more like uh, exiled Israel than those who lived in the nation of Israel. And that's why the apostle Peter in 1 Peter calls us exiles and sojourners. Because indeed, that is exactly what we are. We're exiles, 
pilgrims, sojourners. Now, this shouldn't be all that surprising to us. If you recall, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was a man who himself was something of a reject, something of a lonely man, right? The truth for Christ that a prophet is not accepted in his own hometown wasn't just true in Nazareth. That was true for Christ wherever he went. That was true for Christ throughout his life. Remember what John tells us early in the book of John. He tells us that Jesus didn't entrust himself to anyone because he knew what was in the heart of man. Then, of course, Isaiah 53, a passage that we like to quote in this season, says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men, men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This was true throughout all of Christ's life, but it was especially true at the cross, right? Where all of his friends, all of his disciples abandoned him. Everyone left him. The example of Peter's denial is a perfect picture of that. Here's Peter, one of the three closest men to Jesus. And what does he do while Jesus is being falsely accused and tried and judged? He denies him. Denies him. Jesus was a man familiar with sorrow and grief. And all of that, and he still had to endure the cross. He had to suffer and die a life of rejection, a life of being abandoned by his friends. And yet, we know why he had to suffer like that, don't we? He had to suffer that so that we would not be abandoned, so that we would not have to suffer the suffering that he endured for us in order to reconcile us to God. He was cursed, judged, so that we would never be. And so when you see a passage like this, when you think about it, this passage in Colossians captures for us the fulfillment of what Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 19. When he said, everyone who has left house or brother or sister or father or mother or wife or child or field for for my sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. You see, we live in a world that not only rejected Christ, but rejects the followers of Christ. And so it's in the fellowship of believers that we find our comfort. Our comfort. It's in the fellowship of believers that we find our companionship. It's in the unity that exists among those who are united to Christ that we find joy. Listen to how Diedrich Bonhoeffer Uh, puts it in his book, Life Together, he says, it's not simply to be taken for granted that the Christian has the privilege of living among other Christians. Between the death of Christ and the last day, it is only by a gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in visible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share God's word and sacrament. Not all Christians receive this blessing. The imprisoned, the sick, the scattered, the lonely, the proclaimers of the gospel in heathen lands 
they stand alone. Well, here is the Apostle Paul in a foreign land proclaiming the gospel while in prison, and yet he's surrounded with brothers. He's surrounded with companions who he says are great sources of comfort for him. Paul expresses this reality of these men who are there with him being his comfort when he uses the word beloved to describe them. He uses that term three times here. He says of Tychicus, he is my beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. He says of Onesimus, he is our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, referring to the church at Colossae. And then when describing Luke, Paul describes him as the beloved physician. Now, although Paul uses the term here, beloved, in referring to these three men, I think it's clear that Paul is obviously comforted by each of his companions. These were his fellow prisoners, fellow workers, fellow servants. They were all great sources of comfort for him. And so it should be clear that Paul wanted these fellow believers to also be a comfort to the Christians at Colossae as well. You see, here in the church at Colossae, they were surrounded by a culture that rejected them, a culture that was trying to impress upon them its cultural norms and practices, things that these Christians would have been familiar with, things that these Christians would have come out of. And then within the church, they had their own struggles, their own difficulties. False teachers were teaching false doctrine, things that these Christians in Colossae had to stand up against. And so you can imagine the encouragement here that would come across to them when they hear that they are not alone. They're part of a larger fellowship of believers in Christ. They have fellow believers who are wrestling and struggling just like them and alongside of them as well. They're not alone. They're part of the body of Jesus Christ, the household of God. You see, it's like what Bonhoeffer said. It's God's faithfulness to believers when he brings others alongside his people. I'm sure you know that. I remember as a young Christian when I converted in my late teens, early 20s, I prayed for just one Christian friend, just one, Lord. He gave me two. Praise God. He's gracious. And you know how friends can, can play a part and a role in your Christian walk. And so you can imagine having fellow believers to be there, to come alongside of you, to encourage you, to remind you again that you are not alone. Because the truth is, it's easy, isn't it? It's easy when times get difficult. It's easy in our struggles with sin. It's easy to feel like we are alone. It's easy to feel like the prophet Isaiah felt in 1 Kings 19, if you remember. Elijah felt alone. He said to the Lord, The people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I am the only one left, and they seek to take my life. Elijah felt alone, and yet he wasn't, was he? His Lord was with him. The Lord comes and expresses his care for Elijah. And then he tells him, secondly, 
that he had saved, that he had preserved 7,000 in Israel who had not yet bent the knee to the balls. Maybe you're here tonight and you feel somewhat alone in your struggles. Somewhat alone in whatever it is that you're dealing with, the trial that you're facing. Brother and sister, I'm here to remind you that you indeed are not alone. Your Lord and Savior is with you. He is always with you. He knows exactly how it feels to be alone, and He knows that better than any of us could. He's with you, and in addition to that, He has preserved a people for you. Fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, just like Paul lists here, to come alongside of you, to encourage you, to care for you, to pray for you, to uphold you. So I encourage you tonight, continue to entrust yourself to your fellow believers in Christ. As fellow believers, stand next to each other, pray for each other, lift each other up, all the while looking to your Redeemer who has saved you. Second, what we see in this text is that there are fellow believers who are growing in Christ. When we consider what uh, some of the people that Paul mentions here, what we see is really a a beautiful tapestry of men and women who are real people with uh, real trials and difficulty, but all who are growing in Jesus Christ. Just to point out a few, Paul mentions first Onesimus. Maybe you've heard that name before. Onesimus was mentioned in this book before. Onesimus was a runaway slave. If you've read the book Philemon, then you've probably heard the name Onesimus. Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave. You see, Onesimus wasn't always a Christian. Prior to running away from Philemon, he wasn't just a slave to Philemon, but he was a slave to sin. He wasn't a Christian. But through the ministry of Paul, at some point, Onesimus came to profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says in the book of Philemon, in verse 10, he calls Onesimus his very son. And Paul refers to himself as Onesimus' father. Listen to what he says. He says this to Philemon. I appeal to you, my child, for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, Paul says. Paul had become fond of of Onesimus. He would go on to say that he would gladly keep Onesimus alongside of him because he's a great servant, but he didn't want to do so without Philemon's approval. So Onesimus had become a fond, or Paul had become fond of Onesimus. But more than that, Onesimus had become a trustworthy companion to Paul. Isn't that how the Lord works He takes sinners, runaway slaves, and he makes them trustworthy people. Takes people just like Onesimus, which uh, for him to have run away as a slave was a criminal thing for him to do. The Lord takes such people and he changes them. He shapes them. 
as Ezekiel tells us, he takes their hearts of stone and he gives to them a heart of flesh. See, Paul says to the church here in Colossae that Onesimus is one of them. Literally, he is from this group of people. Onesimus was known to these Christians at Colossae. He was a fellow countryman of theirs. And they would have known about what happened between Onesimus and Philemon. They would have known that Onesimus was an untrustworthy man. He was a runaway slave and so wasn't to be trusted. And yet now Paul says he is a faithful and beloved brother among them. This probably would have been a shock for these Christians in Colossae. Having known what happened between Philemon and Onesimus, for Paul now to say that Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. That term faithful that Paul uses here is a word that can be translated as trustworthy. He's trustworthy. Now, should it be difficult to really imagine the Lord making an untrustworthy person into a trustworthy person? Absolutely not. That's what the work of God does, right? We're talking about the supernatural power of God here in the heart and life of an individual. The Lord is in the business of changing lives, of changing hearts. And so it really shouldn't surprise us when we read here about a runaway slave who has become a faithful and beloved brother. We are all in need of God's amazing work in our lives, aren't we? Amen, we are. Don't kid yourself, brother and sister. Apart from the grace of God, all of us could easily be like Onesimus, a criminal, a runaway slave, an untrustworthy man. Now, in addition to Onesimus, Paul mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Who is this Mark, cousin of Barnabas? Well, this man, Mark, was also known by the name John or John Mark. John Mark was mentioned in Acts 12 as one who accompanied Paul and Barnabas to their journey uh, to Jerusalem. He also accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But when they set sail at a certain point, this Mark abandoned Paul and Barnabas. And uh, Luke tells us in Acts 15, he gives us a little bit further details about what all happened there. It got so bad that Paul was greatly upset with John Mark. He couldn't trust John Mark. He couldn't trust him so much that he didn't want to take him on another missionary journey. At a certain point, Paul wanted to go back and revisit the churches that they had established and visited on their first missionary journey. And Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, John Mark, to which Paul said, no way. We are not taking him. He's already abandoned us once. Well, as you can imagine, a uh, sharp disagreement broke out between them, and Paul and Barnabas landed up separating over John Mark. And so it's at least interesting to now hear in our text that Mark is back again with the Apostle Paul. I say it's more than interesting. It's encouraging, to be honest with you. See, when brothers and sisters in the faith have a disagreement and then reconcile, that's an encouraging reality among God's people. We are a reconciled people, and so we should be a people who reconcile. 
along the lines of what Psalm 133 says. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Paul and Mark had been reconciled. Paul even goes to say in 2 Timothy 4, he tells Timothy to bring John Mark to him, for he is very useful for me for ministry. Have you ever had a conflict, a disagreement with a brother or sister in Christ? Sad when that happens, right? It's difficult when that happens. But then when there is reconciliation after such disagreement, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I think we oftentimes aren't willing to reconcile with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We feel like the wrongs that people have done to us are, are too big, too great. Now, I don't mean to minimize the wrongs that people have done against us, but shouldn't we be a reconciled people if God has reconciled us to himself? Shouldn't we be a people who live in light of the wonderful news of what Christ has done for us? In light of that, shouldn't we be those who pursue reconciliation as far as we can? Absolutely. You see, anytime sinners come together, whether that be in a marriage, whether that be in a friendship, whether that be in a church, there's always potential when sinners come together for conflict for strife, for disagreement. How will we handle such disputes? Will we dig in our heels and hold on to the wrongs that people have done against us? Or will we think about Christ? Will we think about the gospel, what God has done for us who were, well, his enemies at a certain point. While we were enemies, God in Christ reconciled us to himself. Now, sadly, sometimes reconciliation isn't possible. Paul mentions a man by the name of Demas in verse 14 here. We learn in 2 Timothy 4 that eventually this man, Demas, deserts Paul, abandons him. Sadly, at times, reconciliation isn't possible. But that doesn't mean that we as Christians ought not to pursue it as far as it is in our power to do so. You see, we're all growing in Jesus Christ. None of us have arrived. We are all works in progress. And what that means is there's going to be offenses. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be conflicts. But in those times, we are called to continue to look to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and strive to be a fellowship of reconciled brothers and sisters. Well, the third thing we see in this text is the coordination of believers. These are fellow believers who are all working for Christ. With all of the, the real and potential differences that exist among these people, the unifying factor is the fact that they are in Christ. And that unifying factor gives to these Christians a single focus, the ministry of Jesus Christ. When I was a young man, I knew very little about classical music. I listen to classical music quite a bit now. I listen to some stuff, but uh, you know, it was in my, in my teens. I, I don't recall exactly, but I remember coming across a symphony, a beautiful symphony 
where there were all these various instruments all working together to make this beautiful sound. If you've ever been to a symphony or watched a symphony, you know how beautiful it is. That's really what we have here in this text here. We have different brothers and sisters all together working, cooperating, coordinating together for one purpose, the work of the ministry of Christ. Paul says of Tychicus in verse 7, I have sent him to you to tell you all about my activities that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. At the time that Paul is writing this, Paul's in prison, most likely in Rome. And so here is Tychicus who has to travel from Rome to Colossae, a far, far travel, a huge trip. But I imagine it was nothing for him to do so. He and Onesimus had the church at Colossae and the ministry of the gospel on their hearts and minds. They were willing to work for the kingdom of Christ. And so imagine the encouragement that the Christians at Colossae would have experienced when these men showed up, bringing them reports and encouragements, but even more than that, bringing them inspired Scripture. They're bringing this very letter to the church at Colossae, inspired Scripture. They're bringing the word of the Lord to bear upon the life of His people. We hear a a hint of that when Paul says, take this letter that you're reading and read it or take it to Laodicea and have them bring their letter and have it read among you. Now, surely when we think of the work and ministry that we do in the church, we don't think of, you know, being the bearers of God's uh, inspired word. But you see, it wasn't just Tychicus and Onesimus who were involved in the work here. There were others who were doing things behind the scenes. They were involved in work and ministry that wasn't uh, in the public eye. There was Aristarchus and John Mark, Jesus called Justice, who were assistants to Paul. Really, they were encouragements to Paul. These men were willing to suffer alongside of Paul to be his companions, his fellow workers, and his fellow prisoners. Then there was Epaphras. Epaphras, who had been mentioned before in this text, he was probably the church planter of this church. And what does Paul tell us here about Epaphras in verse 12? He's a man of prayer. He's a man of prayer. Prayer is certainly a ministry and work that is done outside of the public eye. Paul tells us he's always struggling in prayer for this church at Colossae. Epaphras is constantly on his knees praying that these Christians in Colossae would stand firm, stand firm in the truth, stand mature and assured in the will of God is what he says. Now that's a major work when you think about it. Now when I think we think of prayer. I don't think we give prayer uh, enough appreciation for the impact that prayer has. My mother this past week uh, had operation, had a surgery on an aneurysm in her brain. She had brain surgery. And Christians all around were praying for my mother. What a wonderful work and ministry of fellow believers to pray to lift each other up in prayer. 
I imagine some of you here tonight are prayer warriors. Keep that up, brothers and sisters. We all need prayer. Pray for your minister. Pray for your elders. Pray for your deacons. Pray for each other. Pray for the churches of the URC. Pray for faithful churches. Pray for faithful preaching. Pray for faithful ministry. We have so much to pray for. Pray. It's as one commentator said, he said, it's often what a person does and invests away from the public eye that says most about their devotion to God's people and the work of ministry. Prayer. But the work of prayer isn't the only behind-the-scenes work that is mentioned here, is it? There's also, like I said, the simple work of encouragement. Paul lists Luke, the physician, now, yes, Luke had participated in writing Scripture, and yes, he was a physician. But I think what Luke is listed for here mainly is to say that he is an encouragement, a source of encouragement for Paul. We hear again at the end of 2 Timothy that after everyone had abandoned Paul, Luke alone was his lone companion. How much more can be said in this text in regards to the various works and ministry and workers? There was the church at Laodicea. There was Nympha who volunteered her home for the church. Um, now, they are not with Paul, but they are fellow workers in the fact that they are in some way engaging in the ministry of the gospel. There's also Archibus, a minister who Paul says should fulfill the calling that the Lord has given to him. But I think you get the point. These are brothers and sisters all coming together in Christ for the work of Christ, for the work of the kingdom of Christ. So I encourage you tonight, whatever gift God has given to you, use it. Use it for his kingdom. And if you don't know what gift you have, well, consider it. Think about it. Or maybe engage in some volunteer work within the church and see where the Lord takes you. Maybe He will reveal a gift that He has indeed given to you. I think you get the point, right, brothers and sisters? These people at Colossae were not alone. They were not alone in the work and ministry of Christ. They were not alone in the world and culture that they lived in. They were not alone in their struggles and their growing in Christ. And the same is true for us tonight. We too are not alone. Whatever work we might be involved in in the life of the church, we're not alone. We have fellow brothers and sisters alongside of us. Whatever uh, struggles we are individually and personally facing in our Christian growth, we are not alone. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're struggling with, the Lord is with you. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's been through it. He can identify with you in that and even more than we can ever imagine. So I pray that this text encourages you tonight to realize that you too are not alone. You have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have a Lord who has given himself for you to bind himself to you. Continue to entrust yourself to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a very 
practical text like this. A text that isn't necessarily heavy on the doctrine, Lord, but a text that shows us the beauty of your work and the lives of Christians and how, Lord, you are the master artist who bring various lives together all for the glory of the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray, Father, that we would be comforted and encouraged by this text tonight and that you would work in us, Lord, to continue to trust in Christ, our Lord, who suffered and died for us, and that we too, like the names of those that we heard in this text, would be eager to participate in the life of each other and the ministry of your church. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.